0: First Peter is classified in what are called general epistles of the New Testament, basically meaning they were not written by Paul. The general epistles have several authors. We've been working on this now for a number of months, this short letter with much practical instruction in it. Peter has been telling Christians how to cope with being in a secular society where they will certainly be noticed quite possibly be persecuted, and how they are looked to looked to look to Christ as their model of living in that society, he continues talking about rather practical things today in chapter 4. I'll read verses 1 through 6. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh... Has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead now, that although judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does." And this is God's holy word. A very instructive metaphor for thinking about the Christian life, I believe, is found in the dramatic events that brought World War II in Europe to a conclusion. Certainly, no matter what your age, if you've learned any history at all, you know what happened on June 6, 1944, as the Allied forces of America and Britain and Canada and some others invaded at Normandy in a great invasion that had been kept secret amazingly and stormed ashore there in France under heavy fire and many casualties as they brought in a landing and established a beachhead so that men and supplies could flow by the thousands into France and then, of course, eventually Uh, combat the German forces all the way to Berlin. And it really is possible to say that the Allied victory in World War II in Europe was secured a day or two after D-Day. Any military strategist looking at the whole thing would have said there really isn't any way that we can fail to conquer Hitler and his forces now. There'll still be bitter fighting. There'll still be many casualties but we will win this war, and, of course, they did. But that did not stop the fact that there were big pushbacks militarily, like the Battle of the Bulge six months after D-Day, in which, in bitter cold, in a terrible European winter, Americans and other forces suffered greatly when Hitler decided to push back using some of his best panzer tank divisions. But the outcome was sure. I want you to sort of keep that in mind as I'm speaking today because when we look upon what is happening here and, and consider it in light of the cross and the work of Jesus Christ, I would point you back to something we just covered a week or so ago in 1 Peter 3.18 where it says Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive In the Spirit, the work of Christ on his cross, his unique saving death in the place of sinners was the Bible's D-Day, the decision of God's victory over sin and death and evil that would combat the good news of Christ. And once that cross was established and once Christ had given himself as the only and unique Savior, the war was decided and was decided for all time and eternity. But that does not remove the fact that we still live in an era of conflict as it winds down towards the end of the age. Today, I want you to show you that Peter's concern here, stated in 4, 1 through 6, is that we would learn to think correctly about our standing in a world of pagan attitudes, of non-Christian thinking, we should be thinking differently. We should arm ourselves with the same attitude that Christ had here is what Peter's telling us and be able to stand in this age in between that time of the D-Day victory of the cross that decided the conflict and the winding down skirmishes that you and I have to participate in until Christ returns and we finally see God's victory. First of all, I want to tell you this about what you're thinking should be considering. First of all, that every Christian has already shared in Christ's death and resurrection. That's like telling every American soldier who came in at Normandy, you all shared in this victory and nobody can take it away from us, and it will have lasting consequences. And so, Peter says, since you have shared in this, if you're suffering now and you think, it's sort of an impossible situation that the culture is attacking you. You need to arm yourselves with right thinking because you actually, if you've suffered in the flesh because of being Christ, you have been, sin, been released, in effect, from the consequence of sin. It's not saying you don't sin anymore, but you are released from its ultimate penalty, Jesus was the one who most conclusively ceased from dealing with sin. He dealt with it once. He won the victory over it, and now it is vanquished. You remember what his last words were on the cross. I don't know whether he shouted that word. It was a one-word Greek statement on the cross when Jesus said, finished. He was finished with the conflict of man's rebellion against God. He laid it down, and he knew that he had accomplished exactly what he needed to. Even though he died, he knew he would rise in just a couple days hence. He knew that D-Day had come for the conflict with sin and death. And do you realize that the Bible says if you have trusted in him, if you have called him Lord, if his spirit dwells in you, you shared in the consequences of his death, and of his new life. D-Day, spiritually, has happened for you, and you can share in the ultimate outcome of knowing that you will not be punished by God for sin that is no longer yours. Galatians 2.20 picks up the theme when Paul writes and says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's as if I went to the cross too, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And so the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Every Christian, in a very real sense, spiritually died at Calvary to God's ultimate judgment upon us. We're done with it. That's what it means when it says we have ceased from sin. Again, not that we don't sin, but that we are done with the final consequence of fearing that our lives might end and we would face God, and he would say, you are guilty, guilty, guilty. He won't say that to us because we have faced the ultimate penalty. Christ our Lord has faced it and done away with it. Now, when the father looks upon a Christian then, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. Another passage that that raises this similar theme is Romans 6. 5 through 11, there we read, voice of Paul, we have been united with Christ, if we've been united with Christ in his death, we will certainly be united with him in his resurrection. Our old self was crucified with him that the body of sin may be done away with. Once again, sin hasn't left the world. Sin still plagues us, trips us, tempts us, hurts us. But ultimately, we can count ourselves, in Paul's word, dead to sin and alive to righteousness. That's right thinking that Peter wants you to adopt. He says, I want you to arm yourself with that thinking. You have to keep telling yourself that. Yes, I've sinned. Yes, I've failed God. Yes, I'm weak. Yes, I give in to lusts and things. But in Christ, the ultimate result is I am dead. To the final effect of this sin and alive to God's righteousness. You need to keep telling yourself this, training your mind in this way, because otherwise you will believe too easily what your feelings and your experiences tell you. I'm a mess of weaknesses. I can never do anything right. So the Christian who looks to Christ as Lord has shared in the death and resurrection of Christ. We've had D-Day happen in our lives, and the final result is guaranteed. But secondly, we're told in verses 2 and 3 here that it is therefore, as a result of that, time for a clean break to be made with many of society's vain pursuits. Peter said here, writing to people who once he knew were not Christians, and now they are, he says, you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans Love to do. And then what is that? Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Gee, I wish you'd be specific once in a while, Peter. These are the things you are done with. These are things which, because of Christ, you can make a U-turn away from the culture of a world that has had its hooks in you but it no longer has its hooks in you. You are able to walk away from it and not be a slave of it anymore. You notice how the half a dozen things that he is specific about here concern two main big areas, sexual immorality and drunkenness, two primary categories of behavior that needed rebuke, that a Christian ought to be thinking and saying, well, Christ has given me new life, I'm not in shackles to these things. I don't have to be a prisoner to these things. And isn't it interesting that the leading vices of century one are still the leading vices of century 21? Now, of course, he didn't say opioid addiction or some things that we might name today, but when he talks about sexual sin and inebriation, drunkenness and all that it leads to, he's talking about pretty big problems that we still have today. I realized when I came to study this text, if, if you were a visitor here and you go away and say, gee, I, I haven't heard a preacher hammer uh, use of alcohol like I heard today, I don't think I've been called to address that subject in any text or passage that we've dealt with in actually years around here. So in case you think this is a hobby horse of mine, it's not. But here, Peter says at the root of a lot of things is drunkenness. The Bible is death on drunkenness. Read the book of Proverbs and how many things it has to say about how foolish it is to be drunken with wine. And, of course, they used real wine in biblical days. Even fresh water was fairly scarce and it was alcoholic wine. Don't believe somebody that says, oh, well, we know they just had grape juice. Uh, No, it wasn't grape juice. The wine that Jesus produced at a wedding feast was real wine that people recognized and enjoyed for its taste and its richness. It was wine. The Bible doesn't say don't ever let alcohol touch your tongue. There are many who take that position because they say, well, that's a safe position, and I respect that. But the Bible says don't let yourself be captured in drunkenness, in the abuse of alcoholic drink that it so captivates you and carries you along. The word sensuality here is a word that in the Greek actually means letting yourself go, just sort of releasing yourself to the grip of environmental standards and choices until you don't have choices anymore. You're just acting Uh, under the influence of a chemical stimulant. I have been invited this year. I'm sure you're all greatly surprised to know that I'm this old, but uh, I've been invited to attend my 50th high school graduation reunion this fall. My class has organized uh, these reunions every five years, uh, very faithfully. same three women have done it for years now. I have yet to go to one because my main reason is I really prefer to think of all those people as being 18 years old just as I think of myself. And I don't have to be disturbed by all the gray hair and lines in their faces and weight they've put on and all that because, of course, that hasn't happened to me. But uh, I won't be going to the 50th reunion not only because it would require me to leave this pulpit for a weekend in the fall in a busy time but one of the reasons, at least among others, is my personal objection to the way the invitation and the, and the agenda that's going to happen for the reunion weekend is all laid out. Every single time it comes, and they say, now, here's what we'll be doing. Friday night, cocktail hour. Saturday dinner, cash bar. Sunday, picnic in the park, bring your own bottle. And I really have the impression that my fellow classmates from long ago wouldn't be able to recognize one another unless their eyeballs have been pickled in enough alcohol first so that, uh, I don't know why that is so necessary. But you read it and it's it's like all we're going to do is drink all weekend long. Well, Peter raises this subject here. And you may think this is a subject that the Bible beats to death. I really don't think it does. I think the Bible actually says relatively little about the abuse of alcohol, even though it is a great wrong and a great harm in society. And haven't we almost stopped talking about it in American society? You know, it's just there. And we talk about, oh, we've got this terrible drug problem with painkillers that lead people to heroin. That is indeed a huge problem. I don't diminish it in any way whatsoever. and and various other health problems or foolish things that people are doing. We don't even seem to talk about alcohol abuse as a very, very prevalent problem in our society. People talk to me after the first service and with tears in their eyes about a relative who died as an alcoholic. And this is a destroyer, a destroyer of lives and families and marriages and parent and child relationships. Yes, in moderation, of course, alcohol can be enjoyed. I don't deny that, although I don't drink very much myself or even like the stuff very much. But it would be foolish to say you can't enjoy it at all. But the difficulty is drawing lines, and people have trouble drawing lines. They're always stepping over. Oh, I can stop anytime I want to. Are you in a family that's heard that before? I mean, the person saying it is probably someone who can't stop anytime they want to. What can it hurt? Why, how can this lead to anything? Well, ask yourself why the paper just the other day said one woman in seven on a major college campus will be sexually molested while she's at college with alcohol abuse being the primary reason why that will happen. What can it hurt? It can hurt in all kinds of ways, lasting ways that damage people's lives. And Peter here is saying, look, this is the way your culture is going. When people just let themselves go, this is where they go. And they certainly show that they're not living under the control of the Spirit of God. You need, Peter is saying, to arm yourself with the way of thinking that Jesus had, that he is done with some of these things, done with them completely. And so Peter warns in the third place here that a fearful judgment is coming for those who scorn you now over this subject, but you have already experienced. You have already gone through your judgment at the cross, but a judgment is coming, he says. Here's what he said here. They, the pagans that practice these things, are surprised that you do not join them, but in a flood of debauchery they malign you, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The goal he puts before them is that you have ceased from living the rest of your life merely for human passions. You live now for the will of God. Now, it's been evident throughout First Peter that the problem he's addressing is not so much that Christians are being burned at the stake or or murdered uh, in the Roman society. Not yet in Peter's time, although once again I remind you that we know not very long after this letter was written, fiery persecutions broke out and they were beginning to be martyred. But here it's sort of just the prelude, prelude to it where the culture has seen the Christian as somebody that's not cooperating and seems strange, seems like a fifth wheel because... They don't go along and just have fun, and therefore they're to be shunned. Well, Peter says, consider arming yourself with a mind that thinks like the mind of Christ and says, enough already. It's time to step away. I remember a car dealer way back many years ago when I ministered in the Pittsburgh area. There was a car dealer that used to advertise uh, on the radio, and their slogan stuck with me. Uh, apparently, I don't even remember the brand of car, but the only, they were the only dealer in Metropolitan Pittsburgh that carried this, I think it was Saab. I'm not sure of that, but an obscure car that not too many people buy, and this was the only place where you could buy it. And their slogan was, when you stand alone, you have to be a standout. Well, good as a car dealer slogan. I think it's not a bad slogan for a Christian. If you stand alone, see that you stand out. See that you stand out for positive reasons, not just what you might be rejecting. Why is it so many Christians have so little backbone to stand alone against the downward descent of our society towards unbridled sexuality and unbridled alcoholism? Do we really care That people whose lives are out of control and do not know God would include us and let us feel popular with them? Or do we value more the smile of our God and Savior? Because again, in the cross and resurrection, believers have already shared in Christ's awesome victory at the cross. We've already faced our judge, so to speak. God's judgment on believers in Christ who belong to Him and bear His righteousness as an alien righteousness given to them, they didn't earn it, given to them by Christ, is sure. We don't have to fear a final day when God is going to say, oh, you took one drink, too many, too bad, you're out. No. The last thing you have to fear, Christian, is the judgment of God. Because Christ has redeemed you and made you new. And when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his Son. But why on earth would you react and live in this current life based on fearing the scorn of someone who doesn't know God, someone who is entirely an alien to the things of God? Peter says here in verse 6 that those Christians who have already died are actually in a better state right now than others who are physically alive but are caught up in helpless captivity to habits of spiritual death and immorality. I would address young people, if I may. I know there are more of you in this service than the first service this morning. How can I tell you my hope? that there would be some way, young people, you who are in high school yet or even middle school, that you would be able to look ahead in the lives of people who might be scorning you or bullying you on social media and mocking you because you're not doing what their in-crowd is doing. If you could only look forward about 10 or 15 years and see the life and the spiritual and moral condition of those who maybe are bullying you or mocking you or rejecting you. If you could look at them and look inside them in 15 years, you would be looking in a way at similar people to those TV ads for a program I have yet to watch, but I certainly see the ads for The Walking Dead. There are walking dead all over this society of ours, and some of them are your classmates. You just can't see what they're on the way to becoming. You would flee from them, and you would flee from their influence if you could see them as they're going to go if they just follow the course of giving themselves over to the pleasure and immorality of this world. God gives new power to those who belong to Christ, those who ask him, who say, Lord, I'm weak. It's not easy for me to maybe cut it off at two drinks when everybody else is doing otherwise. I'm weak, Lord. How can I help this? Prayer is one. That's not a simplistic answer. That's a positive answer. Pray and say, Lord, I want to have a good time with my friends. I want to enjoy things. I would like to be held in good esteem, but don't let me descend into a sewer to be held in good esteem by the wrong people. Folks, you're called to stand apart from self-destructive worldliness. And young people, you have to start doing it when you're young, or you'll be caught in the paths like, you all know what lemmings are? The lemmings, the rodents that run over a cliff and thousands of them follow some leader and all of them go over the cliff into destruction. That's what so many people are like. I I remember in my day, I was in junior high through ninth grade. That was the old structure. And th- that was the year, ninth grade. I remember it rather vividly. The year that the bragging went on on Monday morning in homeroom. One particular girl I remember who sat near me. She was a really nice girl. I, I liked her. Um, but it just astonished me how about ninth grade, all of a sudden, she was... Boasting every Monday morning. Boy, did I get blasted Friday night. Man, I didn't know where I was or what was happening, and I threw up all over the place. And I wanted to say, Did you have a good time? Was that fun? Did you really desire to do that? And she was just saying, Oh, man, life is great. I just had a great time. I remember friends of mine at a football game and they'd go behind the bleachers where the crowd was cheering the game on the field and they'd had so much beer they couldn't cheer the game on the field. They were behind the bleachers throwing up in the parking lot and they probably told each other, boy, did we have a great time. I know one of those men for sure who's died from my class of alcoholism 20 years ago. He wasn't just such an exception. Folks, I'm not just preaching a certain brand of morality for you. I'm preaching thinking the thoughts of Jesus Christ to know that at his cross, you along with him have died to the penalty, ultimately, of being lost for your sin. You've been given a new life, a life that can turn to God and say, God, I repent. Would you give me the strength of Christ by the Holy Spirit of Christ To live a new life. If I have to stand by myself, I will stand by myself because you will be with me, surely. I give you a story. I know I used this once before, but I think it was a long time ago, so you have to pardon me if you've heard it. Aurelius Augustine was a great man in the history of the church, a man who lived around 500 A.D. Augustine was born to a Roman soldier and a mother who was a godly woman, Monica. And he, however, was a great scholar. He has a wonderful mind. He was being educated, one of these guys who sort of always goes to school, got the equivalent of probably several master's degrees and a doctorate, and he was aiming to be a teacher, a professor. But he had no use for Christianity particularly. And as a young man, he was often drunk with his scholar friends and he lived openly with, I believe, at least two different mistresses and had a child out of wedlock. But then came a day when God reached in and stopped Augustine in mid-flight. The arm of God's grave, grace stopped him cold. And he later cited this scripture, Romans thirteen thirteen, as part of what arrested his flight into pleasure. That verse reads, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness or lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Augustine sought the strength of God, and the Holy Spirit made a new man. He made a mighty leader for the early church, a man with a great mind and a clean life. He became a bishop, and few have led with his kind of power and strength for Christianity since his time long ago. Well, in his diary, he told a concluding little story about how a couple years after he had come to Christ and his life had completely changed, he was walking down a street, and it so happened that a woman who had been his mistress was walking toward him. And she called out. She recognized him, and she apparently was trying to entice him once again to come back to her. And she called out, Augustine, it is I, Augustine, it is I. And at first he didn't answer at all, but when she persisted, he stopped and turned around and he said, Yes, my dear, I see that it is you. But you must understand, it is no longer I, May we be able to be that kind of person for our Savior and think his thoughts on these things in our time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Peter is not simply throwing moralism at us. He's not simply saying, tsk, tsk, it's bad to drink. He's telling us that we have to be committed one way or the other to think the thoughts of Christ and live under the victory of Christ or think the thoughts of this world and live under this world and all of its pleasures that lead to spiritual death. I pray, O God, for anyone, student, adult, senior citizen, who's wrestling with these kinds of things and those who entice them to live a life they know they don't want to live. Would you give them your strength as you pour out your salvation through Jesus our Lord. Amen.